The following presentation on Enlightenment and Revolution is brought to you by the Institute of Catholic Culture. This and other audio and video files are available at instituteofcatholicculture.org. After a welcome by Michael Sorotniak, Director of Catechesis and Evangelization at St. Veronica Catholic Church in Chantilly, Virginia, is an introduction by Sabatino Carnazzo, Executive Director of the Institute. And now, Part 3 of Enlightenment and Revolution with Professor Brendan McGuire, St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us. Praised be Jesus Christ now and forever. Now and forever praised be Jesus Christ. On behalf of our pastor, Reverend Father Edward Hathaway, and our parochial vicar, Stephen Holmes, we'd like to welcome you, excuse me, Reverend Father Stephen Holmes, we'd like to welcome you back to St. Veronica's Parish to uh, continue our series, uh, Enlightenment and Revolution, by the Institute of Catholic Culture. We would like to have... Uh, Reverend Father Joseph Francovilla, begin our session with prayer, please. Please stand. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. It is truly me to call you blessed, O Theotokos, the ever blessed and all blameless, and the mother of our God, higher in honor than the cherubim, and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim. You gave birth to God, the Word, and virginity. You are truly Theotokos. You do we exalt. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, this evening. Um, well, why don't we just start off, as we normally do, by just standing up and finding somebody you don't know. And uh, shake their hands, say hello. Go ahead, stand up. Um, it is uh, my, my pleasure to welcome Brendan McGuire um, once again to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Brendan uh, received his, his MA and he's working on his PhD in as a Catholic historian specializing in classical and me medieval periods. He's a candidate for a doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University. In re recent years, has presented scholarly research on various historical topics at prestigious regional, national, and international conferences. He has taught both history and classical languages at the undergraduate level, and he is currently a professor of history at Christum College, his alma mater. Please welcome back Mr. Brendan McGuire. Thank you, Sabatino. And I'd, I'd like to have a hand for Sabatino for all that he's done keeping us alive, you know. The Institute of Catholic Culture uh, is in a period of transition. Sabatino is in the process of taking this institute to the next level. And we can see that we've gone to the next level because this crowd is, is twice as big as any crowd I've ever seen at, at other parishes, at other venues. This, this is awesome. This is fabulous. And uh, so thank you all for coming. As Sabatino will be the first one to tell you, this only goes on because of your help and, and your support. So thank you. I, in my hand is, is to you guys for supporting this. Um, now, you've had over the past couple of weeks a pretty, from what I understand, a pretty rigorous introduction to the philosophy of the Enlightenment. Is that correct? You say so? How many people have been here the last couple of weeks? Almost everyone. That's awesome. Wow. Um, so, over the past couple of weeks, you've been introduced to the thought of philosophers who changed the course of Western history. But the question for us is, how did these thinkers, how did these elites, how did these eggheads change the course of Western history? Right? 
I mean, it, and it's a valid question because it's all too easy, it's all too facile for us to sit here and say, okay, Western civilization was going along swimmingly, you know, with, with you know, little blips on the radar screen here and there, conquest of Constantinople by the Turks, that's a bad thing. The division of Western Christendom at the time of the Reformation, you know, maybe, maybe we see major changes there. But then suddenly, there's a revolution in philosophy, in philosophy of all things, because that's precisely what the Enlightenment was in the 17th and 18th centuries. It was a revolution in philosophy. And then immediately on the heels of this revolution in philosophy, we see revolutions on the political and social level in European society. And the question is, how and why? What do these things have to do with one another? Right? Because it's very easy for us to sit there and say, okay, dramatic revolutions on the political and social level are caused by revolutions in the realms of thought. But how? I mean, how does that happen? You have elites sitting uh, in coffee shops in Paris uh, or Kaliningrad, sitting there talking about philosophical issues. How does that translate to, to blood in the streets? How does that translate to the overthrow of, of monarchies and states? How does that translate into the suppression of the church, the outlawing of religion, the promotion of secularism? What do those things have to do with one another? And to, to come to answer that question, to come to kind of begin to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves, if we were to put the Enlightenment into a soundbite, if we were to summarize the Enlightenment, how would we do it? Does anybody ha have a, a suggestion for that? If, based on everything you've heard over the last couple of weeks, you've heard all about the Enlightenment. If you were to put it into one sentence, what is the Enlightenment? What is Enlightenment? We have a, a hand over here. Is it man being sort of the measure of all uh, man? Is it man being exalted, right? Something about man being the measure of all things, the exaltation of man. In some sense, you're not far off from what the Enlightenment thinkers themselves would say. Uh, it's funny because even during the Enlightenment, this question was asked. The question was, even during the time of the Enlightenment, even in the 18th century, people were asking, what is Enlightenment? What is this enterprise in which we're all engaged? And this question was so alive in the 18th century that actually in, in 1783, there was an essay contest to define what the Enlightenment was. It was actually a newspaper, uh, Berlinische Monatschrift, had the, the, this essay contest to, to answer the question, was ist Aufklärung? Right? What is Enlightenment? And many famous thinkers responded to this essay contest. Many famous thinkers offered their contributions. Big, heavy hitters, the luminaries of the Enlightenment. For example, Moses Mendelssohn. You've heard of Moses Mendelssohn? Jewish philosopher of the 18th century. He responded with an essay that basically elaborated on the concept that Enlightenment is a process by which man is educated in the use of reason. Reason becomes the important catchword of the Enlightenment. But you might say to yourselves, okay, the Catholic Church also exalts the value of reason, does it not? Going all the way back to patristic times, the value of reason is, is an important part of, of Christianity right, and Western civilization. So is that what's unique about the Enlightenment? Well, maybe, provided that we understand what they mean by reason. Right? When Enlightenment thinkers use the term reason, they're using a loaded term. Uh, another respondent to this essay contest in 1783 was the famous philosopher Immanuel Kant. Right? Now, I'm, I'm sure you got a good introduction to Kant right? over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Immanuel Kant wrote one of his most famous and eloquent essays 
in response to this essay contest, Vasi Saufklärung, right? And uh, his response was along these lines. He said, enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage. Man's release from tutelage. And, and what's tutelage? Tutelage is man's inability to make use of his understanding without direction from another. So what enlightenment does for Kant, and, and if there's a heavy hitter at this point in the 1780s, it's Kant. What enlightenment does is it allows you to exercise your reason as an individual without direction from any other. Now we're, we're obviously dealing in loaded terms. Okay. Subsequent historians picked up on this thread of enlightenment thought, which, which really unifies sort of the rest of what the enlightenment is all about. Everything that the enlightenment is about can be reduced to this, this emphasis on reason and reason which is not subject to the tutelage of other guides, other directors, other sources of authority outside of itself. Uh, for example, there is a, a, a scholar of the enlightenment, Dorinda Utram, who has, I think, one of the most eloquent assessments of, of what the enlightenment was all about. And mind you, this, this is someone who likes the enlightenment. Uh, this is someone who thinks the Enlightenment was a great thing. And here's what she says. Look, Enlightenment was a desire for human affairs to be guided by rationality. Right? Rationality rather than by what? Faith, superstition, or revelation. Enlightenment was a belief in the power of human reason to change society and to liberate the individual from the restraints of custom or arbitrary authority, all backed up by a worldview increasingly validated by science rather than by religion or tradition. Did you catch all that? There's a lot packed into that. There's a lot packed into that paragraph right there. So it's a desire for human affairs to be guided by reason, what they mean by reason. Right? It's the exercise of human judgment independent of faith, independent of revelation, and most importantly, independent of the restraints imposed by tradition, the restraints imposed by custom, and the restraints imposed by authority. Right. Now, it, it doesn't take much elaboration for us to see how explosive these tendencies in European thought could be. Right. But the question is, how do they translate into political and social revolution? How do these trends in the thought of the 18th century translate into the overthrow of governments, the overthrow of the church's position in European society, and even to the, such things as the outlawing of religion? Right? And the answer is it has to do with historical context. As with anything else, we can't understand how the Enlightenment was translated into practical measures, into practical terms, without understanding the historical context. Right? So what we're going to do this evening is we're going to, to try to come to have an understanding of how the revolution in France in the 18th century was the incarnation of Enlightenment ideals. How the revolution in France looked to the Enlightenment as its guide and sought to incarnate in practical form the proscriptions of the Enlightenment right? for a society guided by reason, guided by rationality, and opposed to faith, superstition, revelation, custom, tradition, and arbitrary authority. All right. Now, um, how, is it, how is it that in the 1780s we see this, this dramatic and, and very traumatic event 
in the history of France, the French Revolution. We all know the dates for the French Revolution, right? When's, when's the French Revolution? 1789, right? Yeah, that's one of those dates. It's one of those 1776 type dates. We all know it. 1789, right, is the French Revolution. But what we're not really taught well in our American history books is the way in which the French Revolution was an evolving process, not a single event, right? The French Revolution did not occur overnight. The French Revolution was, uh, it, it was like a domino effect of historical events, a chain of causality where each subsequent event was dependent on the previous event. And things happened very rapidly during the French Revolution. Right? And so the, the revolutionary period in France, which kind of encompasses everything that, that we might call the revolution, properly speaking, uh, can be conceived of as stretching from 1789 all the way down to 1815 with the fall of Napoleon. Right? So it, it's a longer period than just a single year or a single evening or a single event. Right? And the period of the revolution can obviously be divided into phases. What we're going to talk about tonight is the first steps of the revolution, how the revolution gets going, how it picks up momentum, and how it looks to Enlightenment ideals for its inspiration. Okay. So the situation in France in the 1780s, politically and socially, um, how familiar are we with that? What, what's going on in France in the 1780s? Uh, th these events are often seen as, as paving the way for the revolution and kind of providing an environment in which revolution can occur. What's going on in France in the 1780s? Okay, so that's the first major point, right, was hit on right there by this gentleman over here. Famine, right? You have famine in France in the 1780s. Okay, famines happen throughout history. They don't always lead to revolution, right? But sometimes they can create the, the proper environment for revolution, and that's the case here in France in the 1780s. You have famine, which causes widespread starvation and discontent. Now, the causes of the famine... Uh, are largely outside the control of man. Right? The famine in the 1780s in France was caused by environmental things. It was caused by the fact that uh, Europe was entering a kind of a little ice age in the 18th century. Uh, and in terms of the climate, basically the, the farming in France didn't keep up with changes in the climate. Right? Uh, so you have a situation of famine and widespread starvation, right, which exacerbates kind of existing social and political tensions. What's the other major cancer that's growing on French society in the 1780s? Social welfare. Social welfare. Well, you had corruption and immorality all over the place. Uh, I mean, un under Louis XIV in the previous century, for example, you had a lot of corruption and immorality, and it didn't really cause too many problems. Uh, I mean, other than people going to hell. But, uh, <laughs> so, no, you have, you have a major problem that the French monarchy is dealing with here in the 1780s. Debt, right? Yeah, no, someone hit on it right back there. You have public debt, right? Now, of course, what, what's the number one thing that, that leads to public debt? I expenditures, right, but what's the most expensive thing that governments do? War. war, right. And, of course, the French had been at war almost continuously for the previous two centuries. Obviously, in the time of Louis XIV, right, in the time of Louis XIV in the 17th century, France had undergone a major expansion. It had become the preeminent power in Europe and in the world. It had become a very wealthy nation. In the 18th century, France had come upon hard times, wars with the English, wars with Germany, uh, war in the American colonies, for example. 
which came when the French obviously supported the independence of the United States at great cost to the French monarchy under Louis XVI. Right, so by the time we reach the 1780s or so, France has a serious problem with public debt. The, the public debt of France in 1789 was somewhere in the range of 2 billion livres. Right? That's 2 billion pounds of gold. Right? Now, you're talking serious public debt. Right? And this is not at a time in the history of states where, you, where states have the ability to kind of perpetually put off the payment of debt the way they do today. We have this illusory system today, you know, which allows us to kind of not be concerned about public debt. Now, yeah, I don't need to say too much about that. <laughs> but, yeah. Many of us are not concerned about public debt. Uh, the more informed among us are. Right? But in the 18th century, public debt is a huge problem. Right? The state, in an emergency sort of way, has to find a strategy for paying down the public debt and for alleviating the famine. Right. So you have a crisis situation right, for the French monarchy, which comes at a very bad time, because it comes at a time when Enlightenment ideals have become fashionable. Right. This crisis of the French monarchy comes at a time when it's fashionable among the nobility. It's fashionable among the clergy. It's fashionable among the ascendant bourgeois class right, to be a believer in the ideals of the Enlightenment. Right. Uh, the, you know, French society in the 18th century was highly literate. Right, the nobility were highly literate, the clergy were highly literate, even the bourgeois class was highly literate. Right? And so in the coffee shops of Paris, in the salons of all the major cities in France, you have people gathering and, and talking about enlightenment ideas. There's this tremendous optimism abroad about the power of human reason to solve human problems. Do you see how th this is the perfect storm? Right, as far as historical context is concerned. Right? You have wide, widespread optimism about the benefits that will accrue to society if reason can be unshackled from tradition, if reason can be unshackled from faith and revelation and superstition, right? then maybe these crises can be solved. Right? And so it's in this environment, in the late 1780s, that the king of France, Louis XVI, uh, settled upon kind of a radical solution for addressing France's social and political problems. Right? And that solution was the calling of the estates general. Right. Now, we're going to talk about what this means and, and how radical this is to call the estates general. Uh, first of all, when, when we say estates general, can you read my handwriting? Probably not. Estates general. Les états généraux. What does that mean? What are the estates general? Is this something that's done frequently, that, to summon the Estates General? No. no it's not right. In fact, the last time the Estates General had been summoned was 1614. Right? Now it's 1789. So almost two centuries since the last time the Estates General have been called together. Now, what, what is the Estates General? Right. So you guys are familiar with this stuff. The Estates General is an assembly. It's a representative assembly right, meant to represent the three orders of French society. Those are the three estates. Right. So the first estate is, of course, the clergy, the church. Oh, sure. Sabatino wants me to write really big. Estates General. First estate, clergy. Can you see that? 
My writing is terrible. Uh, my writing is better than my drawing, though. So I'm not going to try to draw the estates, General. Um, what's the second estate? The nobility, right. Now, the second estate, uh, it's kind of funny. The, the second estate was divided into two parts. Anybody know what the two parts were? A glass of wine to anyone who knows the two parts of the, the second estate. Over here. Not exactly. Uh, no, the monarchy is kind of separate uh, from the second estate. No, that's the third estate. Uh, no, no, the, the second estate, that is the nobility, it's divided into two kinds of nobility. You have the nobility of the robe and the nobility of the sword. Have you heard the, the, these terms? Nobility of the robe and the nobility of the sword. Uh, the nobility of the robe is that class of nobility that was responsible for the, the exercise of justice in France in the early modern period. Basically, they represent kind of what we might call the judicial branch of the French government. So these were nobles who were stationed in courts throughout the realm of France right, that were kind of analogous to federal district courts in the U.S. today or something like that. They were judges, they were lawyers. You know, so the, you have the nobility of the robe in charge of the administration of justice. Now, the nobility of the sword what is the nobility of the sword? The nobility of the sword was the older portion of the French nobility. The nobility of the sword were the noble families who could trace their descent back to the Middle Ages, usually, back to the time of the Crusades, or even earlier. Maybe even some of them would, would pay to have their genealogies drawn up, showing their families going back to the time of Clovis and the Merovingians, let's say. Or maybe even earlier, who knows, Adam and Eve. Right. But the, the nobility of the sword were noble families that had received their titles in virtue of their, their martial prowess and their defense of the French state in time of war. Right? So you have these two kinds of nobility, nobility of the robe and the sword, and they make up the second estate. So if the clergy are the first estate, the nobility are the second estate, the third estate, the all-important third estate, this is the commons, what the British would call the house of commons or commoners. Right? So that's everyone else. Right? Now, when Louis XVI calls the Estates General to assemble in 1789, at this time of crisis for the French state, um, it's one of those things where this is something we haven't done for a long time, right? We haven't had an Estates General since 1614. So how the heck are we going to do it? Right? What were the rules governing the conduct of the Estates General that had been in place back in 1614? Well, back then, it was kind of simple. Each of the three Estates had an equal number of delegates. Right? But you voted by estate. So the first estate would decide, they would vote to see which way their vote would go. The second estate would vote to see which way their vote would go. And the third estate would do the same. Right? And then so you'd have a two-to-one vote, usually. It was, it was very easy for the clergy and the nobility to outvote the commoners, two-to-one, for example. Right? Now, this causes a lot of controversy as the estates general are being summoned in 1789. There, there's this enormous question out there for how the Estates General should be constituted, how the delegates should be chosen and allocated, and how the voting should be conducted. And what happens is um, those who are, of course, suffused with the Enlightenment, including many ministers of the king and many even in the nobility and among the clergy, they favor this plan. They say, okay, how about we'll do it this way? Instead of, right, Instead of summoning the Estates General the way it was summoned back in 1614, let's summon it in a way that gives more power to the Third Estate. Right? There was even a, a priest, the, the Abbe Sillet, I think his name was, who wrote a, a kind of an inflammatory tract 
entitled, What is the third estate? Now, here we see the, the entrance of Enlightenment ideals directly into French politics in 1789. Because what is the Abbé Sillier saying? He's saying, look, in the past, the third estate has been downtrodden by the privileges, by the traditions of the other estates. Now is the time. Right? Now is the time for enlightenment to prevail. Now is the time for the third estate to be given equality with the other two estates. And for that to happen, right, the way this should be conducted is as follows. The third estate should be able to send twice as many delegates as the other two. Right? So that you'd have maybe 600 delegates combined from the first two estates and 600 delegates from the third estate. Right? And then when you vote, instead of voting by estate, so you only have three votes cast, have the whole assembly vote right, so that every vote counts. One, one man, one vote in the assembly. Right? This is designed to aggrandize the power of the third estate at the expense of the other two. Right? <clears throat> now, it's at this moment in 1789 that we, we begin to see the process by which Louis XVI will be kind of overwhelmed by the tide of revolution. It starts with small things. It starts with the summoning of the Estates General, right, where the question is, well, how should we do this? Should we do this the way we used to do it, or should we do it by some new enlightened way? And what does Louis XVI say? We'll do it the enlightened way. Right? Louis XVI gives his first major concession right, to the thought that was current at the time here. And he allows there to be summoned twice as many delegates from the third estate as from either of the other two. Right, so you end up in a situation where 600 delegates from the third estate come in, around 300 for the nobility and around 300 for the clergy. Right, and they all come to meet at Versailles to deal with this crisis situation in the French state at the time. Now, here's the thing. The, the, the purpose of summoning the estates general is to deal with, mainly to deal with the financial crisis. Right? And yet, and yet, it never really addresses the financial crisis. Right? Almost immediately, when the Estates General is summoned in Paris in the summer of 1789, we see the rapid movement of other events. Right? And the question is, why? Why is that the case? Right? Part of it is Louis XVI's own fault. Right? Prior to the Estates General coming together in Versailles, Louis XVI had, uh, kind of a, as a concession to some of his advisors, Louis XVI had decided to use the Estates General as an opportunity for hearing grievances. Right? And so Louis XVI had urged those who were coming to attend the Estates General to, um, to come up with these lists of grievances. They were called cahiers de doléances, right? the books of grievances right, that could be submitted. What this does is it, it tends to radicalize the delegates. Right. You have delegates coming in, especially from the Third Estate, who are radicalized with their grievances against the government and against the king. Right. Now, th this creates a problem right away, because when the Estates General are summoned, what they want to do is to deal with their grievances. It's to deal with the cahiers de doléances, rather than dealing with the financial crisis, which is what they were summoned to do. Right. And so almost immediately, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have conflict between the king, who's trying to preside over the Estates General, right, and the Estates General themselves, Right, who have other things that they want to do. Right? Now, this conflict boils over. It boils over right away in June of 1789. What basically happens is this. Um, the three estates were supposed to assemble right, 
And each estate was supposed to verify the credentials of its delegates. Right? So the first estate was supposed to assemble, verify the credentials of the clergy. Second estate assemble, verify the credentials of the delegates representing the nobility. And the third estate was supposed to do the same for the commoners. Right? But radical figures within the third estate right, urged that this should not happen this way. Instead, the three estates should get together and act as a single body, right, obliterating the distinctions among the three estates and just come together and, and all verify their credentials together. Right? Now, of course, these two estates, the clergy and the nobility, they know exactly what's going on, right? and they, have, they refuse to go along with this. The third estate, led by, of all people, Abbe Sillé, right, and some of the king's powerful financial advisors, decides to go ahead on its own without the cooperation of the other two estates right, and verify the credentials of its delegates. Right. Now, what they end up doing is just going ahead and doing this without the cooperation of the other two estates. And now Louis XVI realizes a revolution is afoot. Something radical is going on here. Right. So what Louis XVI did was, was kind of funny. Um, he announced that the, that the third estate would not be able to meet in its usual meeting hall. Right? Now he genuinely fears political revolution. So he comes out and he says, okay, the third estate can't meet today at its usual time and in its usual location. In fact, you, we're going to have to put off your next meeting uh, for a, a while. That's it. And people are saying, well, why? Your Royal Highness, why is that? And he says, well, the carpenters have to go in and do some renovations, and you know, there's going to be a royal speech in there in a couple of weeks, and so the room's not going to be ready, and so why don't you guys go on vacation or something, uh, because we're not going to have the hall ready for you for quite a while. Right? Now, if the third estate had not had energetic leadership, this probably would have been the end. Right? But instead, what happens is this. The leaders of the third estate people like Abbe Sillé, people like Necker, the king's financial minister, they decide that now is the time to act decisively. They therefore convened the third estate very famously on the only surface that was available to them. Anyone know what that was? Yeah, the tennis court. They convene on the tennis court and they take an oath. Right. Led by Abbe Sillé, the members of the third estate, joined by some of the nobility, joined by some of the clergy, they take an oath. And the oath is as follows. Right that they are constituting themselves as, instead of the third estate, right, they're calling themselves now the National Constituent Assembly. Right. It's a radical change in terminology. National Constituent Assembly. What does constituent mean? It means they're going to be writing a constitution. Right. And they vow that they will not leave until they have a written constitution for France. Right. Now, just so we know what the political landscape looks like at this point among people in this new National Constituent Assembly, um, first of all, is there a lot of support for abolishing the monarchy at this point? No, no not really. Right? Uh, in fact, the most radical, leftist, liberal, extremist members of the National Constituent Assembly have this radical, crazy idea that maybe they can have a constitutional monarchy. Right? That's the radical extremist position at this point in 1780. Now, we're going to see how the French Revolution evolves, right? Because <laughs> we're, we're going to come a long way from here pretty quickly, right? But that's the situation in 1789. They want a constitutional monarchy like Britain's or something like that, like, like the restored monarchy of Great Britain going back to the 17th century. They want powers for the Estates General or, or the National Assembly. They want a permanently constituted National Assembly analogous to the British Parliament, right? This is radical at the time. 
And this is what they're going for. But what we'll see throughout the whole history of the French Revolution is that through all of its stages and all of its permutations and, and all of its evolutions, um, the position that's the radical extreme position, one minute, will wake up tomorrow and find itself as the conservative position, the archaic position, the traditionalist position. Right. Rarely is there a political movement in the history of, of Western civilization that, that we can see, like the French Revolution, that evolves so quickly right, from conservatism to just extraordinary radicalism. Right. So the National Assembly initially constitutes itself here with this tennis court oath for the drawing up of a constitution. Right. But various movements are afoot. Right. For example, the rumor goes around in Paris that summer that the king intends to abolish the National Assembly. Right? I'm sure Louis XVI would have been fine with abolishing the National Assembly. Right? But he wasn't that kind of a guy. He wasn't nearly a decisive enough guy to take care of something like that. Right? You know, in, in later years, Napoleon was famous for remarking that if he had been king in 1789, the revolution never would have happened. Why? He said, I would have handled it with a whiff of grape shot. That's all you would have needed. A whiff of grape shot, and the whole thing would have evaporated. But Louis XVI wasn't that kind of guy. Right? He never wanted to use force against his own people, right? which is why he became the, the great victim of this whole process. Right? But nevertheless, the rumor goes around that summer. Really, it picks up steam in July of 1789. And the rumor is that Louis XVI is going to surround Paris with foreign mercenaries, German troops, and he's going to abolish the National Assembly and reconstitute the absolute monarchy. Right? And what this leads to, right, what this leads to is an organized assault on the greatest symbol of royal power in palace, and that was the Bastille. Right? Now you might ask, why the Bastille? Right? Why, would, why would the French revolutionaries want to assault the Bastille? What was in the Bastille? Well, a few prisoners. Uh, there was one murder suspect two nobles who were in there for homosexuality or something like that, um, and maybe three other guys or something. I mean, there was almost nobody in there, right? It, it wasn't like you had massive numbers of revolutionaries locked up and they were going to free their friends. But why the Bastille? Well, two reasons. One is symbolic, the other is practical, right? Symbolically, right, the Bastille is the presence of royal authority in the capital, right? Practically, there's a lot of gunpowder and cannons and things that are kept in the Bastille, right? And so what, what you end up having in July of 1789, on the 14th of July, as you all know, is a concentrated assault right, led by leaders of the Third Estate right, to seize the Bastille prison. Now, the commandant of the Bastille very famously refused to fire on his fellow Frenchmen. Right? He refused to fire on the revolutionaries who were assaulting the prison and trying to take over. And for that, he was rewarded. By, those, by his assailants with having his head cut off and mounted on a pike. Right. And so the Bastille fell to the revolutionaries. And what does the king do? What can he do? Nothing. Right. By the summer of 1789, by midsummer of 1789, it's apparent to everyone that the king is a prisoner of the revolution. Right. Now, it's at this point that we begin to see a process of emigration begin in earnest among the French nobility. Right. The French nobility here, once they see the assault on the Bastille and they see that the king can do nothing about it, now is the time to get the heck out of Dodge uh, for the nobility. Right? So you see a lot of the nobility going across to England. A lot of the French nobility go to various places in the German states. Right? Now, this creates 
Th this does more harm than good for Louis the Sixteenth. Right? Think about it. Think about it. The emigration of the nobility. Of course, if I were a noble in France in 1789, I would get the heck out of there, definitely. Right? But what does that do to Louis XVI's position? It, it weakens him tremendously. Right? Because now you have the specter of these émigré nobles that the revolutionary government says are plotting against France. Right? And of course they are plotting against France. They're plotting to come back and end the revolution. Right? But what that does is it creates the specter of a foreign enemy, the specter of English or German invasion, which the revolutionary government uses to its advantage. Right? Now the, the, the king is basically deprived of all support here by the emigration of the nobility. Okay. Uh, the National Constituent Assembly, over the course of the, the rest of the year in 1789 and, and into 1790, it would move to take a few very radical steps right, to establish this new kind of constitutional state on some sort of firm foundation. Right? And the first real step that they take is the issuing of a document right, to declare, ultimately, the bases of this new revolutionary government. And here, once again, we see the direct influence of Enlightenment philosophy. Um, does anyone know what, what, what's the title of this declaration issued by the National Assembly? Precisely, Father. It's, it's the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, is what it's called. Now, we're all very um, big fans of the rights of man, right? Declaration of the Rights of Man. In modernity, um, I, I think one of the biggest uh, ethical dilemmas faced by pro-lifers and, and faced by people who are trying to defend morality and decency is that a lot of times the only language we have to appeal to is this language of the rights of man, that is human rights. Right? So we'll appeal to language of, of human rights uh, against abortion, against other evils that we find, against you know, all, all sorts of things, tyranny, oppression, that sort of thing. Right? Uh, but the problem is that all of this language regarding the rights of man, it's fruit of this Enlightenment tree. Right? And let me read you some, some passages from the Declaration of the Rights of Man, just so you can really see what's afoot here. Um, the Declaration of the Rights of Man uh, speaks as follows, okay, and I quote, The principle, the principle of any sovereignty resides essentially in the nation. No body, no individual can exert authority which does not emanate expressly from it, namely from the nation. Right. I further quote, all the citizens being equal in the eyes of the law are equally admissible to all public dignities, places, and employments according to their capacity and without distinction other than that of their virtues and of their talents. Right. Some of it sounds okay, doesn't it? You're like, oh, what's wrong with that? But this is radical stuff. This is radical stuff. Let's start with the principle of any sovereignty resides essentially in the nation. In the 18th century, there would have been no mistaking the radical, the radical nature of this step. Right? Where does the principle of sovereignty reside for the medieval thinkers? Where? In God. Right? In God. Right. Now, when they say the principle of sovereignty resides in the nation, to say that in the 18th century, make no mistake about it, it is explicitly to remove God from the picture, at least when it comes to the exercise of state authority. Right. What they're saying is the state derives its authority from the nation, from the people. Right. Now, where does that idea come from? 
Where, where does that idea come from, that the authority of the state comes from the nation or the people? Give me some names here, Chris. You give me, okay, John Locke is what Chris said. Now, in some sense, yes. Yeah, no, you're right. We can see Locke speaking here. Because what does Locke say about the state, Chris? Well, what's your other name? Rousseau is another one. All right, so we'll talk about Locke and Rousseau, because Locke and Rousseau are very different. Anyone know what, what Locke says about the nature of the state? Right, is that the state is fundamentally artificial. Right? The state is a creation of the people. Right? The people come together and make a social contract. That's what the state is. It's a contract between people. Right? This is a radical break from previous philosophy and from the traditions of the Christian West. Right? Now, on the other hand, we can hear Rousseau speaking here, too. Right? Now, Rousseau, as you know, was a, a man of, of tremendous idealism about human nature. Right. Rousseau believed that man could exist without a state, didn't he? Rousseau believed that if we all lived like naked savages, with no institutions, with no state, we'd all be happier that way, right? You know, because he held that it was institutions that corrupted man. Right? And so without a state, what do you rely on to, to tell you how to live? Well, Rousseau fell back on a concept that he referred to as the general will. And you can hear that, you can hear echoes of the general will here in this Declaration of the Rights of Man, right? Nobody can exert authority that doesn't emanate from the nation, from the general will, right? So the principle of all authority rests fundamentally in man. And then when we read here in, in this uh, passage I read to you from Article 6, all the citizens being equal in the eyes of the law are equally admissible to all public dignities, places, and employments, etc. What's the problem there? We like the idea that everyone's admissible to all dignities, employments, et cetera. That's what makes America great, isn't it? Uh, and so what's, what's the problem here? What are they doing in this historical context? Well, not much of a moral compass is what, we, is what this gentleman said over here. That might be, I, I wouldn't say that's really the problem. The, the deeper problem here is what they're explicitly doing is destroying the social and political fabric of France. Right? What they're saying is every institution that has previously existed, right, from the church with its privileges to the nobility with their privileges, right, all of these things are impositions upon human equality and radical human freedom. Right? And that's what they're doing when they say everyone is admissible to any public dignity or to any public office. What they're explicitly trying to do is to wipe away uh, the traditional social stratification of France. Right? Now, to wipe away the, the structure of society, the fabric of society, in one fell swoop like that, it's going to be traumatic. There's going to be violence. There are going to be problems. And that's what we're going to see here during the course of the French Revolution. Um, <clears throat> there's another uh, quotation here from the, the uh, Declaration of the Rights of Man that I'd like to point out. It regards property. Okay? And it says as follows. <clears throat> property being an inviolable and sacred right, no one can be deprived of private usage, right, if it is not when the public necessity legally noted evidently requires it, and under the condition of a just and prior indemnity, that is, compensation. Right? So property is so important that no one can be deprived of the private use of property unless the public good requires it. What are they going after there? They're going after the church, right? What's the biggest landowner in France? It's the church, 
right? And that's, that's what this is all ordered towards, right? So the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, in short, contains within itself the seeds for the destruction of French society and the French state and the French church as they had previously existed, right? It's a radical document, right? And it's a radically individualistic document. Now, what this leads to, right, the, after you have this uh, Declaration of the Rights of Man, the next major document produced by this assembly is, of course, what we call the Civil Constitution of the Clergy. Right? Civil Constitution of the Clergy. Now, what is the Civil Constitution of the Clergy all about? It requires an oath of the clergy right, to swear loyalty to the revolutionary government. Of course, that, that's a big problem. But the civil constitution of the clergy, of the clergy also has another major step right, that it takes, and that is it declares all church property to be forfeit to the state. Right. This is the revolutionary government's solution to the problem of France's debt. Right. The debt of the, of the state can be paid by the wealth of the church. Right. Now, to do this, what they do is they, in one fell swoop, confiscate all the church's land throughout France, which, which is a, obviously a massive, massive step. But then they have to make it redeemable. Right? In other words, you can't pay your debt by just you know, digging up a chunk of land and putting it on a trailer and sending it somewhere. Right? So how do you make the land redeemable? You can sell it. But, but then... Huh? You can break it into parcels, you can sell it, but they have an even better way because they're really smart. What's that? Sort of. How about this? How about you issue paper money that's backed by the value of the land? And then, then you can print lots and lots and lots of paper money, assign it arbitrary values, and say that it's backed by the value of the land. And that's what they do. These paper bills that they print were called assignats. You know, and so they print up all these bills, and they try to use them to pay state debts. They try to circulate them, and it's all backed by this massive confiscation of the property of the church. Now, I ask you, how did this happen if the church opposed it? The church was powerful. The church was strong. How could this have happened if the church opposed it? The answer is that powerful men in the church did not oppose this. among the most powerful clerics in France in 1789, 1790, was the famous or infamous figure of Talleyrand. Who's heard of Talleyrand? Right. We all know Talleyrand. Right? Talleyrand became the leading cleric in this constituent assembly. Right? And Talleyrand's arguments were, were as follows. Basically, look, the land of the church doesn't really belong to the church. It belongs to those people who hundreds of years ago, out of piety, donated it to the church, right? Layman donated land to the church. Clovis and Charlemagne donated land to the church, right? Louis IX donated land to the church. So if the church donates it back, we're just doing something for the public good, right? And if, we, if the state agrees to employ us as clergy and pay us a salary, then we're not really losing anything. We can still serve our holy function and all of that. Right? So this is Talleyrand's argument, and this, this actually wins the day at the Constituent Assembly. Right. So the civil constitution of the clergy is passed into law. The clergy are required 
under penalty of law to swear to uphold the civil constitution of the clergy. But of course, the papacy rejects it. Pope Pius VI utterly rejects it and excommunicates any cleric who signs on with the civil constitution of the clergy. Now you have schism. Right. Now you have a situation where there are two churches in France, the church of those clergy hiding out in barns and haylofts who refuse to sign on with this stuff, right. the non-juring clergy, the non-swearing clergy, and then the official clergy, the state clergy, right, who are left in charge of the church buildings throughout France. Right. Now you have genuine revolution in full swing. Right. The power of the church has been undermined. The power of the king has been all but obliterated power of the nobility has been undermined, and this new, very amorphous uh, constituent assembly whose powers are ill-defined is ruling the country in Paris. Right? And so I ask you, what, what can we expect to happen next? What's going to be the next major step? The development of factions within the constituent assembly. Right? And the development of factions within the constituent assembly is going to lead to the dramatic violence of the reign of terror, and eventually to the rise of Napoleon. All right. And so we'll pick this up next week. Thank you. Um, again, the usual rules apply. Five minutes of Q&A, maximum of five questions. Uh, if you have to take a breath in the middle of your question, it's too long. And make sure there's a question mark on the end. All right. Well, the, the first question was already asked. Um, and this lady, what was your name? Uh, Vivian. Um, uh, Vivian here asked, um, and she's an American history teacher, and the question was about Locke. Okay, John Locke is obviously seminal and foundational to the thought of the American founders and, and framers. And uh, so the question is, you know, is John Locke really alien to the Catholic faith? Do we want to link John Locke in with, uh, with the bad guys of Western history? And my response is that, well, first of all, history isn't always that simple. In fact, it's never that simple. Right? Uh, and insofar as we try to always have good guys and bad guys, we're going to um, kind of obscure the proper understanding of things. With regard to Locke, um, the simple answer is this. Uh, whatever the merits of his thought may be, particularly the merits of his thought uh, when compared with some of his contemporaries like Hobbes and Rousseau, uh, whatever the merit of his thought may be, it's incontrovertible that Locke's analysis of the state and what the state is and the ends that the state ought to serve, uh, that his analysis of those things is utterly contrary to the tradition of Western Christianity. Uh, it could not be more alien to the thought of Thomas Aquinas or to the thought of the, ancient, you know, of the ancients, for that matter, Plato and Aristotle. Right? The emphasis on the will, the emphasis on the, the state as uh, this artificial synthetic entity, uh, the emphasis on temporal ends rather than eternal ends, uh, even his discussion of toleration uh, for example, in which Locke urges the toleration of all religions except Catholicism. Uh, uh, these things are, are, you know, in a very, in a way that's incontrovertible, uh, they're uh, radical breaks from the traditions of Western thought and the traditions of Christianity. It doesn't mean there's no merit in the thought of John Locke, and I don't mean to suggest that, because we can always sift the good from the bad with all these things. But is Locke part of this movement? Yes. I have a question. What was the relationship of the army to the king, and why didn't the king use the army? Good question. What is the relationship of the army to the king, and why didn't the king use the army? Um, Louis XVI, um, let's put it this way, there were portions of the army that he controlled directly who were loyal to him, and that was largely the foreign mercenaries. There were other portions of the army who were more loyal to their direct commanders, um, people like Lafayette, for example, 
Now, which side is Lafayette on here? It's completely on the revolutionary side, right? Uh, Lafayette controlled the National Guard in Paris. Uh, he controlled substantial portions of the French army. And so you have portions of the army that are under the command of these guys who have revolutionary sympathies. That's a big problem. Uh, but there were portions of the army that would have been loyal to Louis XVI. Uh, Louis XVI had Swiss guards, for example, who were personally loyal to him. Uh, he also controlled, in, in a much more significant way, large uh, detachments of, of mercenaries. Now, why did Louis XVI not use the army to put down the revolution? Because he didn't want to. That's why he didn't use the army. Louis XVI did not want to use force against his own people. And so he didn't use force against his own people until it got to the point where it was too late. And that's ultimately uh, what Louis XVI went to uh, his grave with, what was the knowledge that he, uh, he had seen the monarchy overthrown, he had seen the church overthrown, but he had refrained from using force against his people. Is there any particular group or groups that started the... Uh, explaining or promoting the Declaration of the Rights of Man. It seems like this revolution of the mind came about very rapidly. How could it have been promoted outside the, the villages of Paris without having this thing just disappear? Um, the, the, the question seems to be, well, these Enlightenment ideas... Right, okay. Uh, so how is this promoted so quickly in the absence of, of mass media? Uh, well, I guess there's uh, two, kind of a two-part answer to that question. In the first place, among elites in French society and European society generally, um, the spread of Enlightenment ideas had begun in the previous century. Right? And th these ideas were extremely fashionable, uh, even, even among uh, nobles who are very close to the king, for example. Um, the, the, Second part of the answer is how do you spread these things? For example, news about what's going on, things like that. And, and the answer is that there was a print uh, news media in Paris that, that dwarfs the print news media in any modern city today. Uh, you had a highly literate urban population, uh, and you had newspapers, broadsheets, uh, that were printed um, you know, in the, the tens or hundreds of thousands per day right, that spread information and political argumentation editorials and opinions and, and that sort of thing, polemics, uh, and these things were read voraciously and discussed and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so you, you do kind of have a mass media within the urban center of Paris that spreads information. It's almost like a 24-hour news thing uh, because they're, they're printing at different times of the day and everything. So, so you almost do have kind of a mass media. One of the things mentioned in this last question was something about the rural versus the city. And is this really all about Paris and, and, and type? If that is my question about how did they elect the common, the people to the third state? Okay, so um, is the French Revolution principally an urban phenomenon uh, within the capital? And um, how did they elect representatives to the Estates General? Uh, the elections of representatives to the Estates General were carried out through local channels uh, in, the, in the old provinces, in the old province system of France. Uh, this is before the provinces were obliterated by the revolutionary government. So that when they called the Estates General, um, you'd have local assemblies that would be held to elect delegates to the third estate, basically. Uh, and then as far as the other two estates are concerned, you have people who, by right, 
belong to the, you know, have the right to represent the different states. Uh, and as far as the, the urban versus rural thing, uh, the French Revolution is very much uh, an urban phenomenon, and it's very much a Parisian phenomenon at first, right? But France had been centralized in a dramatic way by the kings, uh, particularly by Louis XIV in the previous century. So whoever controls Paris really controls the nation in a way that wouldn't have been the case in the Middle Ages or something like that. France was a highly centralized country by the time the end of the 18th century rolls around. Uh, so one more question here in the audience. What was the effect of the American Revolution on the French Revolution? What was the effect of the American Revolution on the French Revolution? Good question. Very, very, very good question. Uh, there's also a two-part answer to that uh, very quickly. In the first place, the American Revolution helped to cause the French Revolution because Louis XVI's support of the American Revolution helped to bankrupt him. Uh, Louis XVI expended tremendous resources uh, trying to help us. Uh, against the British. Right. Now, so that, that was a, a major dream on the French economy, and it was part of a much broader war between France and England. Um, in the second place, what is the effect of the American Revolution ideologically on the French Revolution? Well, that, that's a much longer and much more complex thing, but um, I'll let it suffice to say that the French revolutionaries were self-consciously imitating the American Revolution at the beginning. Right? Uh, they, of course, went much farther, and they were urged to go farther, right? even by some American luminaries, people like Thomas Paine and even Thomas Jefferson, who were at the more radical wing of, of the American Revolution. Um, but initially, something like the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, this is drawn up in self-conscious imitation of uh, the United States Declaration of Independence. So. All right, thank you.